Jodcast, recording at a broad range of frequencies with George Bendo, Josh Hayes, Monique Henson, and Tom Scragg. The Jodcast, September 2017, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm George and joining me in the studio today is Josh. Hello. In the show this time, we'll be presenting a series of interviews from the Measuring Star Formation in the Radio Millimere and Submillimere meeting. People who've been listening for a while may recall that a few months ago that I mentioned that I was leading the organization of this meeting. And during the meeting, we managed to get quite a few interviews, and Josh, in fact, was involved with a couple of those interviews. Yes, I had the opportunity to speak to some very interesting people about things that I have not heard about before. I am not in the star formation area of research, and it was actually really interesting to be able to speak to people who are expert in the field. So I've actually been working in this field of research quite a long time, which is why I organized the meeting. And in fact, I wanted to organize the meeting in large part because I felt like there were a lot of people in a lot of different locations that were studying very similar things, using very similar techniques, but they didn't really know about the research that other people were doing, and so I just felt like it was natural to organize a meeting to get people together to exchange their results on what they're doing so that we no longer have this case where there's somebody in Japan who's working on the same type of spectral line emission, or there's somebody in the United States who's working on the same type of radio emission at the same frequency as somebody in Germany, for example. That's not to say that repeated measurements aren't desirable within science we well, repeated measurements are very good but at the same time you don't want to duplicate science too much of course and so you don't want three or four people publishing the same data with very similar analyses and also you don't want the case where somebody publishes results and says i am the first person to work on this in five or ten or twenty years in the radio band when there are other people on the other side of the planet who are working on that but because people aren't communicating with each other nobody knows what's going on so that was the main goal yeah. of the meeting was just to bring everybody together I personally found this to be a very interesting meeting. This was one of the very few meetings I've been to where I found myself paying attention to virtually all of the talks. I think the only ones where I was distracted was where I had some sort of organizational type duty to take care of while the talk was going on. And even then, I asked other people to take care of those duties while I paid attention to the talks myself. So we have four interviews. These aren't all of the interviews that we did during the meeting, but we'll feature four in this episode, and then we will include the additional interviews in later episodes. So to begin with, we'll have Josh interviewing Sarah Leslie about measuring star formation rates in high redshift galaxies. Hello, I'm Josh Hayes. I'm here with Sarah Leslie from the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy, and Sarah is going to tell us about some of her work. So, Sarah, who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm an Australian studying for my PhD in Germany, and my research is on galaxy evolution, and one of my projects is measuring the star formation rate of galaxies across cosmic time trying to understand how galaxies evolved over time, how they're forming their stars, how they're building up to become the galaxies that we see today. 
And the way we're doing this is using radio continuum emission from the JVLA. Okay, so what do you mean by radio continuum? So it's like radio emission that we're familiar with from our radios, but coming from space. And the reason why we want to use it is because it's at these such long wavelengths, so the emission can just travel through space without being interrupted by dust or anything along the way. And so we get this unobscured view of star formation. But one of the issues is that we still are trying to understand how this emission comes uh, about and how we can exactly relate it to the number of stars that there are in a galaxy. And that's kind of what this conference that I'm at here in Manchester University is about. And so that's pretty exciting. Okay, so what can the rate of star formation actually tell us about a galaxy? Well, it tells us about what kind of galaxy it is and what its activity is. So understanding the rate of star formation is one of the key goals of current observational astrophysics. It helps us constrain models and as an input into simulations. So when we look at galaxies, what we're seeing is the light that's coming from the stars, mostly. So this is a really key quantity. So what exactly can the star formation rates tell us about, say, the age of a galaxy? Is this something that we can look at and say there are more stars in one galaxy, mm-hmm. so this galaxy must be older or younger? Yeah, so there's the star formation rate and then there's the stellar mass of the galaxy. So the star formation rate is what's happening right now, and the stellar mass is how many stars have been built up in the past. And what we find that there's a really interesting correlation between a galaxy's star formation rate and their stellar mass. So they're proportional to each other for blue star-forming galaxies. So if you're thinking of like a spiral or like a disk galaxy, their stellar mass and star formation rate fall along a sequence. And we find that this exists at all redshifts. And this kind of implies that there's some kind of smooth process, like galaxies aren't just forming stars at a random rate. There's something like a smooth internal process that's driving this. But then we see some galaxies that are more red and dead. So they have higher stellar masses, but quite low star formation rates. So they've finished forming their stars. These are old and we call them red and dead. And one of the things that I want to understand is how galaxies go from being these blue disks to being these red galaxies that are not forming stars anymore. So it's got something to do with the gas supply that they have and how they can convert their gas to stars. And maybe there's something that's stopping them from converting their gas to stars, like maybe there's an AGN, a jet that's heating up the gas or blowing all the gas away. So maybe there's no more gas anymore. Okay, so we see blue galaxies through all ages of the universe. Do we see red galaxies today as well as way mm-hmm. back in the past? Are they present yes. at all times as well? Yes. As far back as we can see, I think there seem to be galaxies that show some level of maturity. They've formed some stellar cores already, but the number of red galaxies was smaller in the past, so there wasn't so many galaxies that were as old. That makes sense, because when the universe was younger... But I think it's actually quite surprising there has been some recent discoveries of galaxies that are red at quite high redshifts, redshift 5 and so on. The reason why a galaxy appears red is a combination of a few things. It's the age of the stars, the age of the stellar population, but it's also tied to metallicity and also the 
amount of dust, because if there's dust, that also makes them reddening. So it's not straightforward to say this galaxy is red, so it's old, or it's only got the smaller stars remaining. But I just called them blue okay. and red, because okay. that's what people call them. In okay, so, so a red and dead galaxy might not actually be a red and dead galaxy. A red galaxy could be a blue galaxy. Or is that unnecessarily confusing? Maybe that's unnecessary. I prefer to talk about them as more in terms of are they disc dominated? Do they have a bulge that's a dominant component of the So, so what, what, what do you mean by disc dominated? Are you talking about structure? Yeah, or? the structure of the stellar components. So are all the stars in a disc and how thick is that disk? That's actually an interesting thing as well. So back at higher redshifts, people have been finding that the disks are more turbulent, and so the stars are at larger scale heights, so the disks are more puffy than the flat spiral galaxies that we see okay. today. And that could be because there was just more gas available to these galaxies at higher redshift, so there's more gas coming around and things are more turbulent. Or it could be because the galaxies were forming stars more viciously and there was more supernova feedback and so there was more turbulence because of that. Is this then maybe some relation to elliptical galaxies and disk galaxies? Is this thought to maybe be a bridge between the two? So we don't know how galaxies form their bulges, but we do see that galaxies that have a larger bulge which is like a spherical component that's sitting in the center of the disk. We don't know how they are formed, and but we do see that galaxies that have bulges have lower star formation rates. So they are in the process of dying and becoming these red elliptical galaxies. So I would think that these processes that drive the bulge growth are related to this quenching of the star formation. I think that's a pretty interesting thing that I would like to understand. So we see more star formation in the disk of the galaxy then than in the bulge. Yes. So the bulge is made up of old stars, whereas the disk, it's got old stars, but it's also got new stars are being formed all the time. Okay, so our Milky Way will eventually go on to become one of these elliptical red and dead galaxies? It's possible, I think. Well, the Milky Way is going to merge with Andromeda and then... Well, one of the ways that elliptical galaxies could be made is from the mergers of two disks. What impact would such a merger have on, say, the rate of star formation? So when the merger happens, the gas gets funneled into the centre of the system and you get a big burst of star formation. And then, so this is kind of like the dramatic event that you see in merging galaxies and the beautiful images of ARP220 and the antennae. And then eventually the star formation dies down, everything gets settled into a new stellar disk maybe, or an elliptical system. It depends on the angle that the two galaxies come at each other. And also the gas that gets funneled in, it also must be fueling the supermassive black holes that come from the original galaxies. And supermassive black holes must also merge eventually. This, I mean, this is yeah. all like yeah. so speculative so, so it's saying what probably happens. <laughs> and you get, there was some people from my previous group back in Australia who were working on mergers. And there's this picture. So you have the starburst at the first pass of the two galaxies. And then you also are fueling an AGN. And then as the star formation dies down, 
the AGN is shining more brightly. So the older the merger stage, the more the AGN dominates the emission. And then eventually the gas is used up and the star formation stops and you're left with perhaps a red and dead galaxy that's an elliptical. So that is one proposed mechanism of how we go from these disk galaxies to the red and dead ellipticals. That's actually really interesting. I didn't know this. What exactly are you working on at the moment then? Mm-hmm. So what's yes. what's your current focus? So I actually work on many projects at once. I'm sure we, uh, many of our listeners will uh, relate to that. <laughs> yeah, but I guess the project that I'm working on at the moment is as I said, using the radio continuum to measure the star formation rates of galaxies. But the low-mass galaxies, they're really faint, so it's hard to detect them in the images that we have. And so I am stacking images of galaxies that have the same stellar mass and same redshift and to work out what their average radio emission is and then to try and work out what their average star formation rate is and then see how this changes over time and for galaxies of different mass. And to measure this main sequence relation is what we call it. I mentioned it already. It's the fact that the star formation rate and the stellar mass of galaxies are related and to just constrain this better. And So you've spoken about the fact that they are related, but what is the relation that we're looking at then? So that's one thing that I'm trying to measure. So we know that they're correlated. So a galaxy with a higher stellar mass is forming stars at a greater rate than a galaxy at low stellar mass. And here I'm talking about star-forming galaxies, so the ones that are blue and disc-like. Okay, And also people have found that at higher redshifts, a galaxy that has, for the same stellar mass, a galaxies were forming stars at higher rate at higher redshift. And this is because there was more gas available to them. So they have higher gas fractions, higher star formation rates, at higher redshift. So this correlation between star formation rate and stellar mass, some people find that it's close to linear, some people find that it's got a turnover and it's shallower at higher masses and low redshifts. So I'm just redoing the measurement and seeing how this depends on what type of galaxies we select, because we have to make a selection for these star-forming galaxies. So whether we select via colors, like we're selecting blue galaxies or something else, and how that drives the correlations that we see. And these correlations are important to constrain because they're used as inputs or tests for our understanding of galaxy evolution. So all the cosmological simulations try to reproduce these results. So it's good to have good measurements of these results. And... I find it really interesting because also this correlation was found 10 years ago and it's still quite new and understanding it is, I think, would really help us understanding how galaxies form and evolve because at least 66% of the stars that have been formed in the universe were formed in a galaxy that was on this main sequence correlation. So people have found that the relationship's been linear or that it's got a tail off. Is that from direct measurements or from simulations? Right. So that's mostly from direct measurements. So the relationship is between star formation rate and stellar mass. So we have to measure star formation rates, and there's different ways of doing that. So the massive stars and galaxies is what we're measuring to measure the star formation rate, and these emit in the UV mostly. But 
the UV gets attenuated by dust, it gets absorbed and then re-emitted in the infrared. So some people use UV, some people use infrared, or what's better is a combination of the two. And that's what's been done in the past. But also, when these massive stars die, they explode as supernovae, and these supernovae accelerate electrons, and these electrons then emit synchrotron emission as they gyrate around magnetic fields. And this synchrotron emission, we can pick it up in the radio. So what I'm measuring for my PhD, it's an independent measurement of the number of massive stars in the galaxy. So you're somehow measuring star formation rate from... The number supernovae. of supernovae, yes. How how do you relate the number of stars dying to the number of stars mm-hmm. being formed? It's all dependent on what time scale you're referring to. So while the stars are still alive, they're still emitting in the UV. But then the UV heats the dust, and this takes a bit of time for the dust to then re-radiate in the infrared. And so when we talk about star formation rates, we're talking about on particular time scales. So the radio is sensitive to star formation that happened about 10 mega years ago, because that's how long it takes for the massive stars to go supernovae. Whereas if you're measuring H-alpha, that's time scales less than 10 mega years ago. And so this is something that is often brushed over, but it's relevant. So we're measuring the flux that we get. And then we convert to luminosity because we know the distance to the galaxies from their redshift. But And then we have to assume we know how to relate the flux to the number of stars that made that flux. And so we rely on a lot of stellar models, models of what the stars are emitting. And we're not just measuring one star at a time because these galaxies are far away. We can't resolve individual stars. So we have to have models of the stellar population. So we have massive stars, intermediate mass stars, low mass stars, and... And so I'm, I'm and, presuming you sort of take your measurements of the galaxy and try and fit those sort of high, low, medium mass star parameters mm-hmm. to recreate that output? Yes, but to do that you need to have observations at many different wavelengths, or spectra, I guess. So in my work I'm using the Cosmos survey, so that's a two-square-degree field in the sky that's been observed by all the major observatories. So it has multi-wavelength photometry from X-rays all the way to radio. So it's a large international collaboration that's about 100 or more different members, and it's been a large effort to get all these observations so that we can measure things like the stellar mass of these galaxies. Okay. based on the stellar population. So you're, so you're now in this position to actually start making these much larger scale measurements across many different wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Where are you hoping to actually see this work go in the future? So I guess it's kind of an incremental process. There's We do the best with what we can at each stage. So whenever we get a new data set, we add it and we remake all our measurements and we can go deeper or to further redshifts. So in the future, you know, we'll be making these kind of measurements for galaxies that were at the beginning of the universe. So when the universe was younger and younger. And the great thing about astronomy is that we can have this time axis by looking further away. We're looking further back in time and we can actually look at how galaxies evolved. So in the future, so we're going to add more wavelengths so that we can constrain more properties of the galaxies and get deeper observations so that we can look at fainter galaxies, which either have a lower stellar mass 
so they're fainter, they have less stars, or they're further away. Sarah, thank you very much for allowing us to interview you. Thanks for having me. That's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So next, Monique Henson and Josh interviewed Jacinta Del Hayes about the correlation between infrared and radio emission from star-forming galaxies. Josh and I are here with Dr. Jacinda Del Hayes from the University of Zagreb. Welcome to the Jodcast. Hello, thanks for having me. So um, you're here for a meeting, a star formation rating, is that right? Yes, I'm here in Manchester for the measuring star formation rates in the mm. millimetre, submillimetre and radio. That is a title and a half. It is a long title. <laughs> um, so could you start off by telling us a little bit about your research? Yes, well, first of all, hello. Uh, my name is Jacinta Delhaes and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Zagreb, which is in Croatia. Um, but actually, I'm from Australia. I grew up in Perth in Western Australia. Uh, I did my um, Bachelor of Science degree there and then my PhD in astronomy and astrophysics um, at the University of Western Australia and also um, partly at uh, Uni- University of Oxford here in the UK. Uh, so I've spent a bit of time in the UK and I really, really enjoy my time here. Mm-hmm. Although strangely, I got uh, almost culture shocked when I arrived here yesterday. Um, it feels weird that I'm supposed to speak English. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose unlike in Zagreb. Yeah. yeah. Um, And also it was 40 degrees in Zagreb and I got here and it was raining. (laughs) I didn't pack appropriately. (laughs) That's quite the welcome. Yes, but my research is, well, I'm a radio astronomer and my field of research is galaxy evolution sort of in general. And I've sort of jumped around a bit in my research within that field um, for my PhD, um, for honours, which is sort of like master's and for my postdoc. What I currently work on, Uh, With my research team at the University of Zagreb, uh, there's about seven of us, and we work on a large radio survey with the Carl G. Jansky Very Large Array Telescope, which is in New Mexico in the USA. Uh, so my, uh, our team leader, Vanessa Smolchich, won uh, about 400 hours uh, to conduct a large survey using this telescope. And we pointed the telescope at a patch of sky called Cosmos, the cosmos field. And this is uh, two square degrees. So if you extend your thumb out uh, at, at night and you look point at the, at the full moon, um, the full moon is about 0.5 of a square degree. And uh, cosmos, uh, about nine or ten full moons would fit inside the cosmos field. So it's actually quite a big patch of sky. It's huge, yeah. It's quite big, <laughs> yeah. And so this... Uh, particular patch of sky is quite special because uh, about 10 years ago it was observed with uh, Hubble, the Hubble Space Telescope. And since then it's been observed with almost all of the major ground and space-based telescopes. So of course we have telescopes that are sensitive to all of the different wavelengths of light from the x-rays through the, the ultraviolet optical infrared and into the radio. And what our team did was to contribute a new radio survey. So, so we, uh, basically made a map of the sky, uh, at radio wavelengths. Uh, ours was at three gigahertz, which is a wavelength of 10 centimeters. So you can actually measure that with a ruler, the wavelength of that light. And, um, in this, we found 11,000 galaxies. Not all, most of them had already been discovered before, but we found 11,000 of them you could detect in the radio light. And what you see in the radio are two general populations of galaxies. Uh, star-forming galaxies, so galaxies that are forming a lot of stars, 
and also AGN, active galactic nuclei. So these are, of course, uh, galaxies that have supermassive black holes in the centre, gas and dust falling into these black holes and releasing huge amounts of energy, some of which is in the radio. So we can see these two different populations in, in radio waves at 3 gigahertz. Our science is about studying how galaxies have changed over time. So we know that as you look deeper and deeper into space, you're looking back in time, and that galaxies that you, you see further away look very different to galaxies that are nearby us in the, in the local universe. And this means that over time galaxies have changed since they formed after the Big Bang till now, and we call this galaxy evolution. So with this survey, it's very, very sensitive, which means that we can see very very faint and very small details. Um, and this helps us to, to push studies of galaxy evolution uh, to sort of the cutting edge be beyond what was possible before. Um, my particular paper that we've recently published uh, is about something called the infrared radio correlation. So um, you have massive stars forming within galaxies and... Um, the, the biggest of these stars, they can heat up the dust clouds that surround them and the dust then glows at infrared wavelengths. So you can see them in, you can see the galaxies glowing at infrared wavelengths because of these massive stars. After a few million years, the, the biggest of these stars die in dramatic supernova explosions and these accelerate electrons nearly to the speed of light. And as the electrons interact with the magnetic field of the galaxy, they release radio light. So, we think it's because of these massive stars that uh, you can see both infrared and radio light from a given galaxy. And in fact, the amount of infrared and radio light coming from a galaxy are very, very closely related, and this is called the infrared radio correlation. So what I did with this new radio data and also with um, very good quality far-infrared data from the Herschel Space Telescope uh, was to have a close look at this infrared radio correlation and how it's changed over the history of the universe. So far we've been able to study it a lot in the nearby universe, in galaxies that are around us, but uh, we've, we've lacked the, the good quality data to be able to, to study this out to, to um, further and further distances. And what I found was that it changes very slightly. So galaxies that existed earlier on in the universe uh, released more radio light compared to the amount of infrared light. Was that something you expected? We weren't really sure what to expect because we have to make a lot of assumptions when we study this. We have to assume that the same types of stars form, that the, the number of stars form, how much dust is in these galaxies. We have to assume that many things stay the same. And, of course, that's not the actual reality, but without the ability to measure these things, the best we can do is say, if we make this set of assumptions, what does the data tell us? So what does it possibly tell you that this difference you're seeing changes over time? Mm -hmm. So we're not entirely sure why, the, why we see this change, but we have a few ideas and we're working on, on some more studies to try and understand it. One possibility is that we don't actually understand uh, properly how much radio light we should see from a galaxy at each, at each wavelength uh, of radio. And so we might be making some assumptions there that are meaning that we are overestimating how much radio light we're receiving. Um, another issue is that we think that what 
what I was looking at was the infrared radio correlation of the star-forming galaxies. But we may accidentally have AGN in our sample, so these active galactic nuclei with the, the supermassive black holes in the centre. And if that's the case, then the radio light coming from the AGN is probably contaminating what we're assuming is coming from the star formation. And this may also be why we're measuring too much radio light. So how do you go about attempting to filter out an AGN uh, galaxy from a star-forming galaxy? Okay, so there are a few uh, different ways we can spot AGN. We have to use lots of different wavelengths. So we can spot them in the X-rays. They have certain characteristics in their X-ray light. We can spot them in the mid-infrared. And if we look at their uh, general light pattern with over a vast range of wavelengths, so what we call the spectral energy distribution, they also have some particular characteristics there. So there are these different ways that we can pick them out of the of the general sample in a statistical way. Uh, but also these objects usually have strong radio excess, so a lot more radio light compared to to the other wavelengths. And in particular, when you have a radio survey, you can identify different AGN to what you can at other wavelengths because usually you have AGN that can emit at all of these different types of light, are very energetic in the X-rays, in the mid-infrared, in the optical, uh, and may or may not be uh, have a lot of radio light. But there are also some other peculiar types of AGN which you can only identify in the radio. Why, why is there that difference between the peculiar type that only emit in the radio and the other type that emit in? across the spectrum? That's actually a really good question and we don't really understand why yet. So that's a a new field of research that is progressing at the moment. Um, One scenario is due to the uh, way that they are accreting or um, having gas fall onto the black hole. We think there might be different modes um, of what we call accretion and this could be causing a different... um, different output of light at the other end um, and there are other theories around that that uh, try and explain this but so far this is um, another field that, that we're trying to work on and, and the next generation of radio telescopes of the future will hopefully help us to pin these questions down. And when you say different modes is that when people talk about like radio mode and I can't remember the other one. Quasar mode, yeah. radio mode, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, this is actually old sort of nomenclature, which a lot of people do still use, but as we're getting more and more uh, data and more and more information, a lot of the nomenclature very quickly becomes redundant because we're realising that the physical processes involved are very different to what we thought they were in the first place, so whatever words we were using uh, you know, need to kind of be discarded. But there's a lot of controversy about this because certain people have... Uh, a very strong view about what they think is going on and other people have a very different view and also different astronomers tend to to work at at particular wavelengths and there is a it's not easy to bring everybody together and have a general consensus of of what's going on in these these really strange and really interesting objects so more and more there are more conferences around the world to really try and bring astronomers from different wavelengths together to try and discuss this problem because we're all talking about the same thing but we're using different words so it's really hard to try and figure out what's going on so have you got a a theory that you favor (laughs) (laughs) um I don't think I have a particular theory. It's not 
really my field. I work more on star-forming galaxies, but uh, in our recent series of uh, papers that we've published from my team at the University of Zagreb, uh, we sort of introduced a, a new nomenclature, which is uh, HERGS and LERGS, which are moderate to high excitation radio galaxies and low to moderate excitation radio galaxies. And this is to do with their, their radiative uh, luminosity. So all we're saying is that we don't really know what's going on inside them, but we're going to name these things based on their um, on their emission signatures. So not what we're assuming is the physics of what's going on, but based on, on how bright they are at the wavelengths that we can see them. And in this way, we can then later on um, say, okay, these HERGs are probably these objects, say, radio mode objects that somebody else is describing, uh, which is actually more describing their physical properties um, rather than, sorry, their, their underlying physics rather than their, their observational properties. And how would that particular naming system work across different wavelengths? Because I imagine if you're naming them based on their emission in the radio and then an X-ray astronomer comes along, I guess then it's difficult for them to characterize the objects they're seeing it's a gigantic headache yeah. <laughs> yeah it's actually it's a it's really difficult to try and get this consensus about mm. all of these naming systems um because of course everybody is is working on their their own research and everybody is using nomenclature that really works for them so nomenclature naming system mm-hmm. that really works for them uh, and we try and bring it all together, but it's, you know, it's a gigantic international <laughs> slow moving beast <laughs> that yeah, we're trying yes. to, trying to, uh, all agree on. But of course, another problem is that we don't yet understand the physics that is underneath. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know what to call these things yet. But, uh, I think we've generally agreed that there is a supermassive black hole, that there's stuff falling inside yes. it, that it's releasing <laughs> a lot of energy. And that's, that's yeah. an achievement in itself. <laughs> so you've, Spoken about star-forming galaxies and AGN, what are the main differences then in terms of age or like their, how they exist within the universe? Mm-hmm. What are the things that you see that differentiate the two? That's a really great, great question because both of these processes are essential in galaxy evolution. So we can see that uh, towards higher redshift, which means further distances in, in the universe, so back in time, uh, towards earlier in, in the history of the universe, galaxies formed a lot more stars than they are forming today. And we don't really understand why. We think these two star formation and AGN processes are probably tied together somehow. So one scenario is that you have galaxy mergers. So you have two galaxies that are colliding together. And when this collision happens, you have the, the, the individual stars themselves probably don't collide, but the huge uh, clouds of gas and dust between them probably do collide, compress together, and then you get a sudden burst of star formation triggered by this collision. So you have this, these uh, baby stars forming all over the place. Um, then possibly what happens is, is that some of this gas goes spiralling in towards the centres of these colliding galaxies, where we suspect resides a supermassive black hole. And then we call this triggering the black hole so that it switches on. It starts to release huge, huge amounts of, of light, of, of energy, actually, some of which 
could blow out some of the gas from the galaxy. And we call this feedback. So we can have positive feedback or negative feedback. Maybe some of these processes actually promote further star formation and some of them maybe quench it, so suppress it, stop further star formation. And it's the balance of these two, two processes that probably contribute to the galaxies that we see around us. Now, we don't really understand exactly how they're tied together. We don't understand yet um, the relative contribution of these two processes. And we don't really know when or, or how how much of this is going on. So these are still the questions that remain open for us to try and figure out in the future, uh, and especially with telescopes of the future like the Square Kilometre Array, with the amazing sensitivity and, and angular resolution of it, this telescope will see very small details, very faint details, and hopefully we'll be able to, to just reveal a lot more of the universe out to very large distances that we can see today. And then that will help us understand a lot of different science questions, but a lot of things about galaxy evolution and, and these really, this big question mark that we have going, that we, between the first stars forming in the universe and then the galaxies we see around us today. And so you were saying that the um, amount of stars that form changes over time in the universe, but also, does the type of stars that form seem to change over time as well? Because you were saying you were looking particularly at this infrared emission, which comes from these massive stars heating up their surroundings. And would you expect that you would still get the same types of stars forming over time or different ones? Because then I guess that would change that infrared emission. And... I'm not really an expert on that particular yeah. field, but we. I think the answer is we don't know. Mm. And I think part of the problem at the moment is that we really have to just assume that they stay the same because we don't have any better information. Uh, so for the large part, we have to assume that they stay the same and then make our measurements based on that. But, of course, that may not be correct at all. So with the telescopes of the future, hopefully we'll understand uh well, what we call the initial mass function, which is the amount of gal of sorry, the amount of stars at each mass, uh, how many of those are formed uh, in a certain um, period of star formation in a galaxy. And as we were talking about before, I need to know that because I need to know how many massive stars were formed uh, in order to uh, figure out the star formation rate of the galaxy from the radio light and from the infrared light that I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. So it's basically it's like a ladder of calibration. <laughs> and if the first rung of the ladder is broken, then the whole the whole ladder doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that's a, an, ex an excellent question and we don't really know the answer yet. Mm -hmm. So what are you looking forward to next? You said you've just had a paper out. Um, what are you planning to work on over the next year or so? So what we have an idea to work towards in the future is to do a similar radio surveys, but at slightly different frequencies. Um, because we don't really understand the spectral landscape in the radio of galaxies. We always assume that it is a very boring shape. So you can model what you think the output of light at each, fre at each frequency of radio light looks like, and we think it's really 
boring. So it would look the same at different frequencies in the radio? Not the same, but has a very um, simple shape. Mm-hmm. So increases steadily as your frequency is changing. But part of what we're doing here at the conference this week is discussing the fact that it's a lot more complicated than we we thought it was. Basically, it's complicated. <laughs> We've changed our status from in a relationship to it's complicated. <laughs> um, and so in order to see whether that's true or not, we need a lot more data. So mm-hmm. I think that's what we will work towards in the future is to try and... Um, try and pin down the shape of this spectrum and uh, whether or not that changes the, the rest of our results. Mm. Um, well, great. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Next, Tom Scrag interviews Dylan Dong about measuring star formation at many different radio frequencies. Hello, I'm Tom Scrag, and I'm here with Dylan Dong, who's a graduate student from Caltech in California. Welcome. Thank you. Dylan, what is it you're working on? Uh, So the project that I'm talking about at this conference is a project in search of sort of what we call the gold standard of star formation. Now, this is uh, a bit of a controversial term, right? Everybody disagrees about how best to measure star formation rates. And it's highly dependent on the kinds of uh, galaxies that you're looking at the kinds of environments in particular in those galaxies that you're looking at, which method works better. But at least my talk is hoping to convince people that this particular kind of uh, radiation that's found in the radio, it's called free-free radiation, or uh, the fancy German term is Bremsstrahlung. I'm hoping to convince people that this is a good way of uh, measuring very accurate star formation rates. Free-free radiation is what happens when you have an an electron just floating around in free space and you've got a proton or some other uh, ionized particle with some positive charge. The electron zips right past that proton or that ion and it gets deflected very slightly. And that very slight deflection, uh, because remember Maxwell's laws, when you have accelerating charges, you produce radiation. That's what free-free radiation is. And you can measure that for distant galaxies with the, the radio telescopes we've yeah. got now. Mm-hmm. It's okay. pretty amazing. Like uh, The improvement in instrumentation in radio telescopes over the past decade or so has really allowed us to get down to the sensitivities required to measure this kind of emission. Why are star formation rates? Star formation rates are an effort to sort of encapsulate this extremely complicated phenomenon of star formation itself into one number. And that one number says, you know, in this location, in this galaxy, or maybe this portion of this galaxy, how many times the mass of the sun is forming every year. And this number can tell us lots of things. So uh, really high star formation rates, for example, mean that you'll have lots of supernovae going off every year. And supernovae inject a ton of energy into the galaxy and they can blow out big gas outflows and it can really affect the course of galaxy evolution. If you're looking at other galaxies, you're starting to look back in time because mm-hmm. of the time it takes the signal to come um, to us. So do you see different rates at 
different ages of the universe? Yes, you do. Um, so my actual work is focused on very recent star formation in relatively nearby galaxies. But it's really interesting to look at galaxies that are farther away, and therefore, uh, you know, the star formation occurred earlier in the universe's history. And it turns out that if you zoom all the way back to maybe 10 billion years ago, uh, star formation rates were drastically higher throughout the universe than what you see today. Presumably, there's a lot more free gas around. Mm-hmm. And you get bigger stars and they burn out more quickly. And... Yeah. How did you get into this area? I, I started on this project, actually, uh, my first summer as an undergraduate. Uh, I got this internship at the Carnegie Observatories in Pasadena. And uh, this guy who was working there, Eric Murphy, decided to you know take a chance on this uh freshman and undergraduate basically who knew absolutely nothing and he basically he and you know a bunch of our other collaborators like Emmanuel Momjian basically taught me everything I know and allowed me to really grow as a scientist through this project. This is your first international conference or have you been to other ones? This is my first international conference yes I've been to uh, a few in America but it's the first time I've traveled Yeah, so I actually uh, did a master's degree at Cambridge last year, and um, so it was a really convenient time because uh, I never got a chance to actually do the actual graduation ceremony, and so I got to combine, you know, coming to the UK for this conference with coming to Cambridge to kneel down uh, in Senate Hall and uh, have Latin words that I don't understand spoken at me. So what's the the plan for the, the, the coming year? Do you have a, an observation schedule? Are you looking at new data? Or is it um, data previously taken and then we're, we're starting to analyze it? Yeah, so it's it's data previously taken that we're starting to analyze. Um, and one of the things that about radio data is that there are a lot of complications in analyzing the data. There, there's lots of calibration work that's involved, and that's really mostly what I worked on as an undergraduate. And now we're finally getting to the point where we've got good usable science data and we're going to start comparing it to, for example, other ways of tracing star formation rates and uh, getting science results out of that. You raise an interesting point. We don't typically talk about the mechanics of the the Mm -hmm. work that we do, but you talked about calibration and calibrating the data. Mm -hmm. So you do a set of radio signals. How do you calibrate it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the instrument that I use is uh, the VLA, or the Very Large Array, and it's a set of 27 radio dishes that are located in the high plains of New Mexico. And what you do is you point all of these dishes at the same target, and uh, you look at the differences in the signals that are coming to each of these dishes. And through some fancy maths, through some Fourier transforms and all that uh, rigmarole, uh, you can turn this data into images, uh, which is what you might see, which you might get directly out of, say, an optical telescope. But this entire process from getting the raw uh, data coming into each telescope and turning that into usable uh, images uh, requires a lot of calibration. So, for example, you need to observe uh, sources where you know uh, how the source is supposed to behave. So you have to observe a flux calibrator, for example, which you know exactly how bright it should be in this band uh, in order to know how bright the thing you, you actually are trying to observe is. 
you have to observe a phase calibrator uh, to calibrate one of these essential components of interferometry, which is the phase, and tells you where things are located on the sky. Is it always images that you're looking at, or do you look at the, the raw data and process that to, to get the star formation rates? Yeah, so I think that would be a really interesting avenue to explore, just uh, getting the uh, starting from the actual data that comes out of the interferometer. And perhaps... Uh, it's a better way to do things. Although I think that most astronomers, myself included, typically only work from the image data. But it's definitely something that we want to look into. Do you get to spend time up in New Mexico at the observatory, or is it all remote in an office somewhere? (laughs) Yeah, it's mostly remote in an office. So uh, the VLA is such a complicated instrument, and many billion dollar instrument that they wouldn't let students like me put their grubby little hands on the controls. <laughs> they, they have professional telescope operators. So what you do is, you know, you tell them what you want to observe, you send in a proposal, and you tell them exactly the schedule of objects to observe. And they slot that into the instrument scheduler. And uh, they find the most opportune time to observe your targets. And at some point, after they've observed your targets, then you get an email saying your data is ready. And now's where you know my work begins, where I have to download that data and do some calibration, do some imaging, and hopefully get some science out of it. In your talk, you're talking about different frequencies. Mm-hmm. Is there a reason to look at different frequencies? Well, it's not that some are better than others, but every frequency is a unique window on the universe or on the object that you're trying to uh, understand. So, for example, uh, my talk addresses five different kinds of light. Um, three, three are just radio frequencies. So I've got three gigahertz observations. I've got 15 gigahertz observations and 33 gigahertz in the radio. And I'm also looking at uh, this particular transition of the hydrogen atom called H-alpha. And this particular part of the infrared spectrum, uh, which is the Spitzer 24 micron band. And each one of these can be used by itself in some way to measure the star formation rate. However, uh, when you compare all of these together, you can really get at the differences between each one of these. So in particular, what I'm doing with the three radio frequencies is I'm trying to disentangle the effects of two different kinds of emission. So there's the free-free radiation, which we talked about earlier, which is free ions and free electrons zipping past each other. There's synchrotron radiation, which are these extremely relativistic, so electrons that are traveling close to the speed of light and orbiting around these weak galactic magnetic fields. And so these, these two components are very hard to disentangle from each other, but each one of them tells you a different story about the star formation activity that happened. So free-free radiation directly traces the, uh, the ionized gas around regions which are star-forming. And synchrotron radiation is more of an indirect tracer, where when you have star formation activity, you get supernovae, and those supernovae accelerate these extremely high-energy electrons. The kinds of star-forming regions that I'm looking at are in nearby galaxies. So they're not so far away that all you can see is, you know, the entire galaxy in one pixel, but they're also not so close that you can actually do the 
right thing to do, which is to count stars, right? All the stars are blended together into one pixel. You may even be blending together multiple star-forming regions into one pixel. So what you have to do is you have to look uh, not spatially, but you have to look at different wavelengths to be able to disentangle the multiple effects that you see from star formation. And so in particular, the stars that we do look at are the really massive stars. They're the ones that are like 10, 20, 30 times the mass of our sun. And those stars are hot, they're blue, they produce tons of ultraviolet photons. And some of those ultraviolet photons, if they have high enough energy, are able to ionize hydrogen. So they're able to take uh, a neutral hydrogen atom with a proton and electron bound to each other and just eject that electron into space. And that electron just floats around in this soup, this plasma, around the star-forming region. And the three different kinds of tracers uh, measure various effects of these, uh, of these high-mass stars. So the radio, um, as I was saying earlier, measures primarily at, at the high frequencies. The radio measures primarily the effects of when those electrons zip by the protons. H alpha, which is uh, one of the what's called recombination lines of hydrogen, measures when the electron joins back together with the proton and gives off some light. And 24 microns is really just a proxy for the total infrared emission. And the total infrared emission uh, tells you something not about the gas itself, but about the dust, about the molecules that are floating around the star-forming region. So one of the problems with H-alpha in particular is that even though it's easy to measure, we don't know how much dust is in between us and that region. And those H-alpha photons tend to be absorbed by the dust in a process called extinction. And so the real advantage uh, of my work, which is done in the radio, is that uh, radio measures the exact same electrons and protons that are floating around the soup as H-alpha, but the radio is long wavelength enough that it completely just passes right through the dust. Like, it's really dramatic. Okay. So you, you mentioned extinction. That's like mm-hmm. looking at the sun through clouds. The, the thicker the clouds are, the thicker the dust in this case, uh, the less the, the light gets through. So yeah, exactly. You, see. you mentioned um, recombination lines, mm-hmm. plural. Mm-hmm. So if you get an electron combining with a proton, mm-hmm. why are they multiple lines? Ah, yeah. So this comes from quantum mechanics. You have a proton, uh, and an electron can sit at sort of different energy levels. And there's a minimum energy level called the ground state, and there's uh, and that's the n equals 1 state. And then there's a higher energy level, n equals 2, another higher energy level, n equals 3, all the way up to n equals infinity. And uh, I hope I'm getting this right. I think (laughs) H-alpha is uh, the n equals 3 to n equals 2 transition of the electron. Okay, so when the electrons and the protons come together, they'll come together at the outermost limit and then gradually, like falling down the stairs, they'll go energy level to energy level. One step to Okay, and you can detect that. Yeah, you can. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's cool technology. Mm-hmm. You're talking about multiple tracers. 
Oh, so the other one that I was looking at, particularly in my work, was 24 microns, which is really a proxy for the light that's given off by the dust, as opposed to by the soup that I was talking about earlier. Uh, and why is there light given off by the dust? Because the dust has absorbed a lot of this energy that was coming from the stars, that was coming from the H-alpha that was slamming into the dust. And so one thing that people have done is they've combined the H-alpha photons that actually do manage to escape a star-forming region and head towards Earth with the light that comes from the dust of the photons that did not escape. And if you combine those two, then you can get a sense of the total amount of H-alpha that was produced. And it turns out this is a very good way of doing it. But to, to really confirm it, we want a direct and extinction-free way of measuring star formation. And that's what I do in the radio. Okay, why look at galaxies far away then? You mentioned that because they are far away, mm -hmm. you get a single pixel. Do you compare with closer galaxies to say, okay, this is how the process works and these are the, the relative values in different regions? Yeah, yeah. So uh, really our knowledge of galaxies far away comes from our knowledge of nearby galaxies. We have to look at the things that we can study in detail and really understand the processes that are going on over there in order to be able to extrapolate to things that we can't study in as much detail. So, you know, the, the work that I do really has its foundations in work that people were doing in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, looking at star-forming regions in our own galaxy. But you can't just restrict our knowledge to our own galaxy, because there are all sorts of crazy, complicated phenomena that go on in the universe, and not all of them happen in our own galaxy. We need to look at the full range of environments in order to understand you know, all this beauty that's going on in the universe. Okay. There's a lot of people at the conference. Have you made contacts, friends, people you can talk to that are covering the same top field you're covering? Oh, yeah. Um, it's been great just hearing everybody's talks. We, we'd had a ton of amazing talks at this conference. In particular, uh, there are lots of experts who have been doing the kinds of things that uh, I've been thinking of doing as well. So a lot of people have been uh, doing what's called uh, Markov chain Monte Carlo modeling. And this is uh, an essential statistical tool, I think, for being able to do the separation that I was talking about earlier between synchrotron emission and free-free emission. Uh, so I've really had great conversations with people doing that. There are, of course, you know, experts in the physics of what goes on in star-forming regions, and it's great to learn from their wisdom as well. And overall, you know, it's just nice when you have so much expertise in this one particular subject concentrated in one place. Okay. Well, thanks, Dylan. That's mm -hmm. been really interesting. I hope see, we see you again sometime. Thank you. And finally, Tom interviews Anna Kapinska about measuring low-frequency radio emission from nearby galaxies. Okay, hello. I'm Tom Scrag. It's um, July, and it's the end of the Star Formation Regions Conference here at Manchester. I'm sitting with Dr. Anna Kapinska from the University of Western Australia. So welcome, and thanks for taking some time out to come and talk to us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Most welcome. Okay, so just a, a little bit about um, what are you here for? You presented a paper. How did that go? 
Well, I hope it was went very well. <laughs> yes, so um, uh, I, I came specifically for this uh, very special last meeting, but it was a fantastic meeting uh, to present my research as well as learn a lot, and I definitely do. So, oh, that's, excited. that's good. That's good. Um, University of Western Australia. Where in Western Australia? Well, that is only really one place there. <laughs> it's extremely <laughs> remote. I mean, Western Australia is half of the country and there is one big city. It's Perth. Okay. And it's basically that 80% of the population lives there. <laughs> right. Okay. But it's close to the site of the SKA project uh, coming up. So it's like seven, the SKA is 700 kilometers north from Perth. Okay. So it's still quite a distance to travel, but um, yes. closer than we are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's oh. like one of the closest, largest like a city, a right. large city to the SK. Okay, so originally you studied in the UK? Was it just the, the PhD? Or? I just did a PhD, yes. Right, okay. Was that fun? Absolutely. I enjoyed it very much. There was a, in Southampton University, but yeah, that south of the UK was great. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about what your talk was, what you presented at the conference? Yes, absolutely. I'm a radio astronomer, so I've been, uh, that's why the SKA <laughs> I've been working on uh, a lot of surveys, just especially low frequency surveys uh, with the new telescopes. And uh, what I presented is actually one of the dead science projects I've been doing with these, uh, with these surveys. It is to look at the radio emission from local galaxies. Uh, and what I mean local, they are really not far away from Milky Way, as for astronomical distances, obviously. And what we were really interested to basically see where that emission comes from. We're not looking at the at the black holes here. We're looking at the actually star forming galaxies, which are some of them are not that off from Milky Way, for example. And that will be the emission coming from the star formation and everything else what may be happening in these galaxies, basically. Okay. You look at them in radio. Can you resolve them visually as well? Do we have images? So do you know which part of the galaxy you're looking at? Yes, so it depends on what instrument you're using. The one I'm using is actually fairly low angular resolution. However, you still can resolve it a little bit. In my research, you won't be able to tell exactly which, you know, which spiral exactly came from. But you know whether it is the outer part, if it's hollow, or is it the, the central compact region that is sort of full of star formation. You, you, can, you can resolve that, yeah. We've talked to a few people and they've been mm-hmm. studying distant galaxies, so old Yes. galaxies looking way back in time so you're looking at the local group so these are fairly recently formed it depends actually so actually i, I looked uh, from galaxies from the sculpture group and they've had history some of them actually <laughs> had some interaction going on and the difference is they're much closer so we can see more uh, of more more recent changes because the light was much faster than from many many years ago as in the high redshift ones you're looking at star-forming regions, so mm-hmm. that implies there are parts of the galaxy that don't form stars. Is there a reason why some places are active and others aren't? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so radio, radio astronomy maybe is a little bit peculiar. The objects we would see in radio waves is... Well, I'm, I'm, I've been always working on AGN previously, actually. That means the black, supermassive black holes and jets. Mm-hmm. And that is the one very bright actually aspect of in, in radio objects now when we actually say the star forming that means that you wouldn't actually have the black hole in there so the mission that comes from it is is from the star formation not from the black hole and any anything that may come from the black hole itself okay. that's what i really mean by that okay so you're not getting a picture where you can resolve individual regions 
existence. No. It, it's the balance between what goes on at the centre and the, the rest of the galaxy. So it's very definitely star formation you're looking at, not... The correct. Strange stuff that black holes are doing at the center. Absolutely. Actually, the galaxies that I looked at, they don't really, none of them actually had a black hole. So everything comes from the star formation oh, right. uh, okay. within the galaxy. Yeah. So, what does the star formation rates and what are you studying in terms of star formation? Then? So, in radio, you can actually see two principal components. Uh, one would be uh, so called H2 regions, which basically are the birth of the, uh, the, the places of the birth from the stars, of the stars. And the ones that you will see in radio are the, the most massive ones. They usually are more massive than eight solar masses. And then, as they age, these massive stars will turn into supernovae. And the supernova are also being uh, visible in in radio waves because at some point uh, when they when they when they explode you'll have shocks expanding. So these are the two components that basically balance each other in, in radio. Okay. And you can see more depending on the stellar populations and, and the and the evolutionary path of the of the galaxy. You see more of the supernova and more of the of the H two regions. Right. And so that's really what you're looking at. Yeah. So is this a hot topic in astronomy? Are, are lots of astronomers around? I mean, we've had, what, 50, 60 people here for a week for this conference. So I'm guessing it's a, an exciting area. It is definitely an exciting area for the radio astronomy because up until now we were really mainly focused on the on the black holes because they're the brightest objects in radio waves. But now with the new telescopes, as we moving towards the SKA, we're actually seeing more and more of the normal part of the universe, right? Than the normal <laughs> galaxies, the star formation. And that's that is a hot topic because we really couldn't do it that well before. Not in radio frequencies. Okay. So is this your primary research now? You mentioned black holes. Are you still carrying on with that? Or? I do. I do. It's like it's an additional, let's <laughs> say, expertise that I just gained in a, in a, the past couple of years. But, but I'm super excited. It's uh, it's all it's all encompassed by the radio radio processes, the, the processes that are giving rise to the to the radio emission. So uh, fundamentally, it kind of is the same. This is. Really, right, yes. <laughs> it's all electrons in magnetic fields <laughs> or in ionized medium. Really, <laughs> yeah, it's it's very difficult to sort out what you're looking at sometimes. True, that is true. So that's why we would actually one of the things that I, I find uh, really exciting. So, so with the instruments that I've been using, you don't have really good res uh, spatial resolution when you look at the images. But what you can do instead is to look at the spectral energy distribution. So you take a measurement at different frequencies and construct the spectral energy distribution or just spectra as we call it. And you can actually get a lot of science out of that. You basically then can model what processes are, are happening and that give rise to this distribution of the other. And I find that really exciting. So what are your plans for the next year or a couple of years in terms of the work and observing? Do you get to go to the telescopes? Just as a... No. I always like to ask these questions. I've seen the radio telescopes I work on. Okay. <laughs> Just because I made a special trip to, to basically have a look. What am I using on a daily basis? But no, normally you don't. Everything is done through the computer. Sometimes it is left to the schedule if, if there is stuff on, on duty. But uh, sometimes it's not, and I've been now involved also in a survey when basically I'm sitting at in front of my computer in Perth, I'm moving and, and steering the, the telescope that it's uh, not far away from Sydney. And okay. it's this massive telescope. That, uh, it's exciting, but then it's, you have 12 hours, you're sitting in the middle of the night. 
<laughs> and you just basically look at the uh, plots because you don't even get an image at that point. Yeah. But uh, no, but uh, roughly how the radio astronomical observations really look. Okay. So <laughs> no, are you using a single telescope or uh, an array? No, I was actually using uh, an array. Right. So there's uh, six dishes. That's the um, Australian compact array that you do move those and observe with those. Yeah. Right. Okay. So do you have plans or program for the next 12 months, two years? Things you're going to look at? Time on telescopes? Yeah, well, goodness, I have data that I have to get through. Uh, but yes, the plan that there is, there is, a, there is a few things. There's definitely, I'd like to, uh, take this work that I've been working on recently on this, that starburst, the local star forming galaxies and starburst galaxies, uh, to take it for, uh, further and then get as much science out of it as we can. But also, I have been working on, uh, on the black holes and the radio galaxies. So there is, there is a little bit of work over there as well. And, uh, there's a number of surveys that we still deliver. And the surveys are there to, once we, once we're done with them, calibrate everything to make sure that it, the quality is assured. We, we release it to public, so actually any astronomer can use it okay. as well. So You release the class. data to the public? Actually, it is publicly available, so if anyone from public wants to use it, they can as well. Okay. It's not protected <laughs> by any, you know, like uh, passwords or anything, so right. uh, anyone can access it. Okay, note to the listener, if you want to do that, <laughs> make sure you've got a big enough computer to, to actually process the data. Well, images. <laughs> images. Yeah. Okay. We're getting images. <laughs> <laughs> we process the data on <laughs> all my supercomputers. You mentioned starburst galaxies. What's a starburst galaxy then? Starburst galaxies are the ones that have particularly high star formation rates and they're literally bursting with star formation. And uh, one that I was looking at in this particular study actually is one of the very famous and archetypal ones, which is called NGC 253, <laughs> which is actually called also Sculptor sculptor uh, galaxy and it's absolutely fantastic it it has a absolutely spectacular radio halo and this halo is is actually produced by the by the stellar winds coming from its starburst nucleus is that powerful in in producing the star uh, stars yeah so it's spectacular galaxy basically how do you tell the difference then between that starburst and an active galactic nuclei for example that's a very good question <laughs> it actually is because they are so so powerful and so bright this particular one is very close so you can resolve it you know exactly where, where the emission comes from but if you put this galaxy in a higher redshift the only thing what you're going to see is unresolved source and then how you tell it that's right so you do have to look at the multiple wavelengths and what we do is look at the spectral energy distribution as well not only for example as i said this uh, 10 gigahertz but much 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 more from radio through infrared uh, uv x-rays and so on and then you try to model that and that will tell you whether the emission comes from AGN or the stars, because that will behave differently with the energy distribution. That's one of one, for example. Okay. Um, so looking at different wavelengths. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And obviously, I mean, the very powerful AGN, they'll have jets, which are which obviously this galaxy won't. Right. Okay. So you, yeah. you can resolve the jets separate from the the, the galaxies in the sometimes ones yeah. you look at. Sometimes if they are if they are not that powerful or just they're very young. You, you may not resolve the jets, and what you just see is unresolved object. But if that's an AGN, that will predominantly come in from jets. Okay. In terms of the conference then, what's the most useful or the most interesting thing that you found? 
everything. <laughs> no, I think it's one of I'll the... I'll pass very... that to George. He'll be very <laughs> pleased. I actually found this conference like one of the few that just just drags you and you just follow and I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it and there were lots of very good science and maybe because as well this is a, re- a relatively new subject for me especially in the sub-millimeter and millimeter regime so I'm radio astronomy from the low frequency range so a lot of it was was new to me I mean not totally new so I knew a little bit so I could just fill in the gaps okay. in the knowledge that's why I actually found that extremely useful. Okay, so outside of astronomy, do you have interests or hobbies or a passion that you, you get involved in? Too many. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, um, I think there are two that I've been active in <laughs> recently. <laughs> well, I, I, I love photography. More images? <laughs> well, but that, that's why I actually, I actually do analogue black and white photography. Uh-huh, okay. I don't do it in the front of the computer. It's in film, exactly. Uh, in the dark room, when you don't do the electronic digital stuff that I do every single day. Right. <laughs> it's a way, it's a little bit of way out, I, I suppose, and, and you do the more chemistry related stuff. <laughs> uh, so that's one of the things I do. The other things that I really like and enjoy is um, medieval reenactment. Okay. <laughs> that's totally different, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Which is much more historical and you reenact it, so it's, that's a lot of aspects to it. You can do the military-like, fashion-like, just trying to reconstruct the living, how, how it used to be five centuries or seven centuries or more ago. Okay, very, <laughs> very historically um, accurate or...? Reasonably. Okay. Do you have a particular character you... you no, I don't. Do? No, so, so I've never actually created a persona. It okay. was more interested in um, just... Placing myself like in 1400 and just try to live that time. Okay, just lie <laughs> out in the desert and look at the night sky and <laughs> more astronomy. Well, I, I got really involved in it in, um, in the UK and, uh, and there's lots of events. So you basically go on the weekend and you don't have your mobile phone and you don't have your computer. So well, a complete break. Yes. Complete break. And yes, you can look at the sky and at the stars. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, it sounds fascinating. Well, it's really good to talk to people about what they do outside of astronomy, as well as the things that we spend our uh, our days working on. Days and nights. <laughs> days and nights, yes. That's right. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thanks for, for coming to talk to us today, Anna. And um, again, I hope you enjoyed the conference and good journey. Thank you very much. <laughs> and now on to feedback. So we have one piece of post. Yes, we've received a postcard from Francis Cairns, who writes, Dear Jodcast, I visited the National Air and Space Museum at Dollars Airport, Washington, D.C. today, and thought I'd send a postcard of the Space Shuttle Discovery and the Twin of Pathfinder. On the reverse of the postcard, we have, indeed, some pictures of the Space Shuttle Discovery and uh, the Pathfinder Twin. Or maybe it's a flight spare. So I was in the Washington, D.C. area visiting my sister and her family and my father came to visit, and I also saw some other relatives on the trip as well. One of those days, we went to National Mall, and so I saw the National Air and Space Museum branch on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., so... And we also got to see a lot of these types of things, various capsules from various missions and astronaut suits, 
What I personally found very thrilling were some of the instruments from some of the space observatories and space experiments. Among other things, there is a flight spare for one of the instruments on the Hubble Space Telescope. Well, it's either the flight spare or the original decommissioned instrument, which is in display in the National Air and Space Museum. And they also have the flight spares for the instruments for the COBE mission. The COBE mission flew in the early 1990s, and that was the first space experiment to detect variations in the cosmic microwave background left over from the Big Bang. And the people who were the principal investigators for some of those instruments went on to win Nobel Prizes for their work, which they justly deserved. So I personally took a great thrill from being able to see this type of instrumentation. There are other places around the world where you can see this type of stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, the Science Museum in London, near where I grew up, has part of a spare, I think it's the top of a Saturn V rocket suspended from the ceiling, as well as a flight spare for one of the moon landing modules, which are pretty cool to actually be able to see. And you realise how small these capsules that these men who went to the moon um, actually floated about in. And incredibly thin-walled, sort of centimetre or two of metal keeping you from, well, a nice death in the empty vacuum of space. That's cheery. <laughs> At the opposite extreme, the National Museum of Scotland has the decommissioned scuba instrument from the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope. This was a pioneering submillimeter imager from the late 1990s. It did a lot of breakthrough work, although it's also relatively obsolete by today's standards. So it's no longer needed. It is in the museum, and it's also a really huge, chunky thing, because it doesn't have to be built small to go into space. It just needs to work properly. Yes. <laughs> well, we have a couple of emails to read. The first one's from Jan, who says, Hi, Jodcast crew. As it's something I haven't heard you do before, I wanted to let you know how much I appreciated the discussion in the August podcast on the Danish paper. I found both the explanation of the critique and LIGO's response and the discussion of the controversy and wider implications really interesting. It was a great insight into a range of views working scientists have on these issues, so thank you. We have an email here from Stephen who says, Dear all, hi from a first-time listener, lifelong stargazer. I won't even claim amateur astronomer. However, you're on my RSS feed list now. I visited Jodrell Bank about a month ago for the first time in over 30 years. Your telescope remains as awesomely beautiful as I remembered. My only crib is still the injustice done to the Manchester University Botany Department. Why no commemorative potato patch? It wouldn't need to be a very large one. Half an acre of some Cheshire variety spud would be nicely symbolic. Yours, Stephen. Well, thanks for the post and the emails, and if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post, the address you can find on the website. 
Well, first, in the acknowledgments, I just want to point out that a few of the people who attended the Star Formation meeting, including two of the people who we interviewed, have received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program under grant agreement number 730562 with Radionet. Thanks to Jacinta Del Hayes, Dylan Dong, Anna Kapinska, and Sarah Leslie for the interviews. The editors were George Bendo, Tom Armitage, Tom Scrag, and Benjamin Shaw. The producer was George Bendo. Until next time, Jadon. Jadon.